Good morning, friends. Thanks for joining us today as we uh, continue on in our series in Matthew. Uh, I hope you're doing well, and I just want to start us off this time in a season of prayer. So if you will, just pause for a moment and join me in this time of prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive what God has for us today in Matthew chapter 9. God, we just pray that you will open up our eyes to see what it is in your word that you want us to see, Father. We pray that you'll prepare our minds, Father, to think deeply about the gospel, about mission, about Jesus and his glory, Father, to think deeply about the need this world has for the gospel. Father, I pray that you'll grip our hearts, God. We have lots of needs uh, in this community, Father. There's lots of opportunities to share the gospel with our neighbor and with the nations, Father. And I pray that you will mobilize your people. You are the Lord of the harvest, Father. And my prayer is that you will send out the people of Grace Church. Lord, not just here in Ovilla, not just among our own people, but, Father, to reach out in Ovilla, in Glen Heights, Lord, in DeSoto, in Duncanville, Father, in Midlothian, in Waxahachie, in Lancaster, and all the places that Grace people find themselves. And, Lord, from there, I pray that you will cause our mission to, to overflow to the nations, the Dominican Republic, to Malawi, to Colombia, Father, to China, to, to other places all around the world, Father, so that people can hear the good news that Christ is King. So, Father, I pray that you will help us today as we think, as we pray, as we look into Scripture, and as we behold Jesus. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. If you want to, you can just pause the video right now and turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35, and we're going to go into chapter 10 today. Um, And so, if you will, just pause Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Here's what it says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Tom, Thomas and Matthew the, the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. In January 1956, three Huarani tribespeople encountered strangers standing on a sandbar and shouting phrases of friendship in the native language. Though the strangers proved to be kind, one of the Hurani men deceived his fellow tribespeople into believing that these visitors had come to attack them and had tried to attack them. And, and so these tribespeople, being filled with confusion, filled with anger, decided that they were going to go and kill the missionaries. And one by one, the Hurani warriors speared the visitors and threw their bodies into the river. Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming... Ed McCulley, and Roger Udarian were killed. When the massacre was over, the attackers said that they saw lights and heard singing just kind of flying over the trees. It was a moment that they would never forget for the rest of their lives. About two years after the brutal attack, more visitors came into the Ecuadorian Amazon. They were women. One of the women was named Elizabeth Elliot. She was the wife of Jim Elliot, the first man who had been speared in the river that day in the Amazon. The other woman was a, a woman named Rachel Saint, who was Nate Saint's sister, the pilot who had been speared, the pilot who had brought them into the Amazon forest. With them was a young Hurani young woman named Dayuma, who had escaped her violent culture when she was a young girl and had been raised with foreigners and had learned the gospel and had become a Christian. The day Dayuma returned back to the Amazonian jungle was the day that marked the beginning of restoration for this very violent and restless people group. 
One of the attackers, whose name was Mame Minkaye, hearing the message of the gospel, put down his spears and followed Jesus. And with him, several others also decided to follow Christ. And throughout the years, throughout decades, Minkaye came with Steve Saint, Nate Saint's son, and he traveled around the world sharing his testimony, sharing about how Jesus had saved him, a murderer, a once violent headhunter of this very violent tribe. He would tell people in his testimony, we lived angry, hating, and killing for no reason until they brought us God's markings. Now those of us who walk with God and walk on God's trail live happily and in peace. Well, Minkai died this week. And we know and trust that because of his profession of faith in Jesus Christ, because of his, his trust in the Lord for salvation, that Minkaye is around the throne of Jesus, singing and worshiping in the Hurani language and praising Jesus as the king. It's amazing to think that this people group that once just speared people for no reason, that, that would kill people and, and was bloodthirsty, that now their songs are being lifted up to the throne of God, that they are praising God in their own language. We see a fulfillment of what Jesus has said already in Matthew, in, in, in Matthew as he said that many from east and west would come together and would recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's an amazing testimony of the power of the gospel. And it gives us a clear picture of the transformation that comes through the gospel of Christ. Now, as we approach the second large discourse in Matthew's gospel, which is often called the missional discourse. We're invited to consider how powerful the gospel is. We're invited to consider how the kingship of Jesus, how the lost sheep of the world, how people like Minkaye, and how our mission to reach those people all come together. Jesus is king, the world is lost, and we are called. And all three of those things come together in one text. So here's some questions that we're going to ask. Why should we as a church in Ovilla, Texas, do everything possible to send out the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations? Not just our neighbors, not just local outreach, not just local evangelism, but to have a view that has the whole world in mind. Why should we as a church do everything we could with our finances, with our time, with our energy, with our people resources, to send people out, to plant churches, to, to reach the lost, to, to go out and live among the unreached people groups of the world. The simple message of Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, is that our mission as disciples of Jesus is a continuation of Christ's mission. His mission is the fountainhead and the foundation of our mission. And because this is true, we turn now to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 10, chapter 10, verse 4, to consider how Christ's mission does form our mission, how his mission does found our mission. How does his mission flow out to form and create our mission as a church? The missional discourse, just kind of paint the picture of the context of where we're at, serves as a prequel to the Great Commission. It's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission comes later in Matthew chapter 28. So this is kind of a, a preview of what's to come. Some people have called it a pre-Great Commission commission. And it's here that Jesus is sending out his disciples on a sort of practice run to, to send them out to kind of give them a preview of what he's going to ask them to do. There's lots of key differences that sets this commission apart from the Great Commission. For example, it's in this passage that Jesus instructs his disciples to only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Whereas in the Great Commission, Jesus has all nations in view. He tells his disciples to go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all of his commands. So putting this text in its proper context... We must see that it's instructive. We must see that it's meant to, to give a highlight to the kind of mission that we have been called to do as God's people. So here Jesus is preparing his disciples. He wants them to get ready for what he's about to do in Matthew 28. As we continue on in this sermon and this time together, I hope to make five basic points 
about the Christian mission from this passage that will help us see why mission, why being missional, why being gospel-centered, why being gospel-motivated is so crucial to the life of a disciple. The The very first point is this. The Christian mission is a continuation of Christ's ministry. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says this, And Jesus went out through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, Matthew's been giving, a, giving us a glimpse of what this looked like throughout the last several chapters. It's essential to see that for Jesus, both word and deed come together here. He has proclaimed and taught about the kingdom, and he has given visible demonstrations of the kingdom. We see an example of him teaching in the synagogues, for example, in Luke chapter 4, when he stood in the synagogue of Nazareth and read from Isaiah 61, declaring its fulfillment in himself. He proclaimed the gospel or the good news of the kingdom as he announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. And in this, he was saying that God's grace had powerfully invaded into this fallen world. God's grace had powerfully come down, had interceded into humanity. The kingdom had broken through into the kingdom of darkness. This, practically, means that restoration had come for the broken and for the repentant, and that judgment was imminent for those who would reject the Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, as we read just uh, several weeks ago, actually, Jesus defines the kingdom's coming as God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the kingdom of God coming means people, God's people, and all creation reflecting God's intention and will perfectly. A world free from sin, a world free from rebellion and transgression. So Jesus is declaring that the kingdom has come. So now people can reflect what God intended them to do. And this ministry of teaching and proclaiming came with visible demonstrations of what the kingdom would look like. He healed diseases. He healed afflictions. Demonstrating that in himself, the consequences of the fall were being turned back. He was showing that in the kingdom of God, blind people will see. Lame people will walk. Lepers will be made clean. Hemorrhaging women will be cured. Dead girls will rise again. In the kingdom of God, everything bad, everything sad, everything broken will become untrue, and there will be nothing but perfect peace and joy and life and abundance. And in Jesus' healing ministry, he gives us just a small glimpse of what that would look like in the days to come. Now, Matthew outlines the ministry of Jesus, I think, in order to connect Christ's work with the work that the disciples are now being called to do. In chapter 10, verses 7 through 8, just a couple sections down, we'll be dealing with that section next week. Jesus tells his disciples to do this and proclaim as you, as you go. That, that word proclaim, we just found Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. It's the very same work that Christ himself was described as doing. We've already seen all this happening in Jesus' work. And so when Jesus calls his disciples to go, he's calling them to share in the work he has already begun to do. Their work is a continuation of his mission. Now, interesting, we see this point later on in, in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts. If you've read through Luke, it's it's amazing gospel to read. I, I love reading Matthew and Luke together. When you're reading, the, reading Luke's gospel, he, he intentionally sets out to tell you everything that has been accomplished, specifically by Jesus on the cross. He wants to tell you everything that Jesus has done, all the work that Jesus uh, uh, accomplished for our redemption. And then he turns to the book of Acts. Now, for most people, you, if you were to ask, what is the book of Acts about? Most people say, well, it's the Acts of the disciples or the apostles. It's, it's the, the church age. This is, this is the book of the church. This is the textbook of what missions is, right? That's what people think of Acts. And yet, think about this. When Luke begins the book of Acts, he describes it in a little different way. Yes, it is the textbook on mission, 
That's not just our mission. That's not just the apostles' mission. Listen to this. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now that's interesting. Why would he feel the need to talk about what Jesus began to do and teach? Well, I think there's a clear implication in Acts that Luke is about to show us what Jesus continued to do through his church. So if Luke is about what Jesus began to do at his cross and resurrection, then Acts is about what Jesus continues to do in his church as the gospel spreads throughout all the world. My friends, this is an an incredible point to ponder. This is incredible, important, crucial truth that we must understand. Our mission is not just a sidetrack from Jesus's mission. Our mission is not plan B and Jesus' mission plan A. It's one and the same mission. Jesus came. He proclaimed good news to the captives. He set the captives free. He proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand. How's that any different from what we do? Now, to be sure, Jesus, his work included sacrificial atonement. And and we can't provide atonement for people. But we do declare it. Jesus came to reconcile people back to God. Well, we are now messengers of reconciliation. He is the king. We are the ambassadors. He has accomplished atonement. And we declare it is finished to the whole world. And that if they simply come in faith and trust in Jesus, repent of sin, and they put their whole lives fully on him, then they can be saved. So I think when we think of mission... We should stop talking about just our mission. It's not just the church's mission. The church's mission, the Christian mission, is a continuation of Jesus' mission. When we go to the nations and share the gospel, when we go to our neighbor and we proclaim the good news, when when we pray with someone that's hurting in our neighborhood, when we address the neighbors that are around us that are terrified of COVID, terrified of losing their job, and we come in as a presence of peace and as a presence of comfort and speaking hope in Jesus. My friends, we are doing what Jesus already began to do back then. We are carrying on the mission of Jesus. So we engage in mission simply because it is continuing on the work of our Savior. The second point we see about mission is that the Christian mission is the extension of Christ's compassion. I, I, I've just got to tell you, I uh, was sitting on my front porch, you know, trying to uh, seclude myself a little bit. Kids were in the backyard playing. I could hear them playing. And my wife was inside doing a few different things. And I just, I thought about this point. And as I sat there on the porch, swing, just tears welling up in my eyes to think that mission, our mission in proclaiming the gospel is a visible display of Christ's compassion. We have a loving Savior. We're given a glimpse of Jesus' heart in verse 36. Just want to read it slowly and emphasize some things that should come to mind. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion is the best English word that we have for this Greek word, and I think it still falls short. Compassion, sometimes when we, when we think about compassion, we think of having pity for someone, right? You, you, see, you see someone begging on the side of the road, and you have com- you're moved to compassion, right? So it's some kind of pity that moves you to action. Well, pity is definitely a part of it. Com- compassion is not a bad way to put it, but there's something more fully happening, on, happening in this text. Even compassion, the word compassion, doesn't fully capture the full beauty of what is happening in Jesus' heart when he sees these people. I think if we think of our English idiom, where we say something like to our spouse, I love you from the bottom of my heart, that gets closer to the actual Greek connotation here. The Greek connotation means like from his very depths, from the inside of him, from the deepest parts of him, he's moved to love. When Jesus saw the crowds, he didn't just have pity on them. He didn't just look at them with a compassionate eye. He was deeply moved from inside of him. 
from the deepest parts of Jesus, love stirring up in him. Such is the heart of Christ for the fallen world. Just as a moment of transparency, my friends, I've been so convicted by that fact. I'm called the shepherd, and and the shepherd in a way that mirrors the shepherding of Christ, but few times do we as do I as a human shepherd feel this deep inward stirring and longing and love that just pours out and bursts out of my chest. But that's what Jesus has for people. It's a love that's in turmoil in your gut. It's a love from the deepest part that wants to gush out. They were sheep without a shepherd. Now that phrase reaches all the way back to the Old Testament. You see it in several points in the Old Testament. But I think in this case it explicitly alludes to Ezekiel 34. Now in its context, Ezekiel 34 is an indictment against the leaders of Israel. God is indicting the, the, the shepherds for not doing their job. You've heard our modern phrase about self-serving leaders who shear the sheep, right? Or they're, they're, they're fleecing the flock. Well, that's kind of what was happening, but just, that's just a small description of that. The shepherds of Israel were not just shearing the sheep, they were slaughtering the sheep. Not just fleecing the flock, they were actually killing people and, and, taking a, and, and oppressing them. They were ignoring them, they were being negligent. They were taking every advantage they could of the people they had been entrusted with. God indicts these shepherds saying this, The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. As a result of their negligence, the sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd. So just to see the sheep from God's viewpoint, the sheep are scattered throughout the nation. They're scattered all over the world with no shepherd to care for them, to heal their wounds, to bring them back, to nurture them, to lead them to green pastures and still waters. And so what does God do? Well, God makes a resolution. He resolves that he himself will bring back his stray. So this is beautiful, just following this logic of God. The shepherds have failed. The the sheep are scattered. So what does God say? I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will, I will strengthen the weak and the fat and strong I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. And so when Yahweh comes for a sheep, there will be no corrupt leadership. There's no extortion, no taking advantage of these uh, sheep. No more self-serving shepherds. He alone would be their shepherd. Now what's interesting in this is God just said, I myself will shepherd the the sheep. But in just a few verses down in Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24, he says this, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now I'm not good at math. I never have been. Part of the reason why I felt a really strong calling to ministry was I knew that I couldn't do anything with math. I'm very glad ministry doesn't have any kind of math component in it. I say that, and my math teacher will probably email me this week uh, with lots of disappointment in his voice, uh, but who cares? Um, now, let's just do simple math here. Yahweh himself will be the shepherd. There will be one shepherd, and God will raise up David to be a shepherd. One plus one equals one. How is that going to work out? How is it that God is going to shepherd his sheep, that there will be one shepherd over them, and that David will shepherd them? And, and in this description of this, this servant, David, which David at this point had been long dead, so we're kind of looking at a new David, it says that he will feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince over them. Well, the beauty of this mystery merges together as Yahweh takes on flesh, bears the title, the son of David, and now is the good shepherd that shepherds the sheep. Jesus is the one shepherd, the divine shepherd, and the Davidic shepherd all together in one single person. And so when we see Jesus having compassion for the sheep, 
having compassion for the scattered sheep. We're seeing Ezekiel 34 come to play where God has shown up on the scene to shepherd, to feed, to heal, to, to strengthen and to lead his people back to the green pastures, back to the still waters. My friend, this is a beautiful picture of Jesus who deep inside of his soul, God himself, the divine shepherd being stirred up to love for these scattered sheep. Let me just say something very clear. It is absolutely no coincidence that the compassion of Jesus would lead him to speak about the harvest, the need for harvest workers, the need to pray for harvest workers, and then would launch us into a missional discourse that would compel us to see what our mission is in this broken world. Absolutely no coincidence. These two things go together. The Christian mission is an overflow of the abundant love of Christ for the lost and broken sheep. Evangelism is an overflow of the compassion and deep love of Jesus for lost people. And I think it's beautiful that in all of this, Jesus has invited us to share and spread his love and compassion. To share and spread, not just to taste and see that the Lord is good, but to tell others that the Lord is good. We get the beautiful, beautiful commission to declare hope for the hopeless, to proclaim the good news to those who are broken, to proclaim the compassion of Jesus and to live that out. When people ask me, why is it such a big deal that we go overseas and share the gospel? Why is it such a big deal that we give so much of our money to missions? Surely we could cut that, right? Why is it such a big deal that we need to evangelize in our neighborhoods and that I need to share the gospel with my neighbor? And here we see the very simple church, the very simple truth that a church that does not engage in mission both to neighbors and to nations is a church that is void of the compassion of Christ. My friends, if we want to be a church that exudes the compassion of Christ, that just smacks of the love of Jesus, we have to be a church that cares about getting the gospel to people everywhere. We have to be a church that will do anything for the gospel to reach all nations. It's explicitly because we have a compassionate, loving shepherd that we are called to mirror and extend that compassion by sharing the gospel with others. So in this, being missional, I think, being missional, being, being gospel-minded, being a person who wants your neighbor to taste and see, to know the sweetness of the gospel, will help you to experience further the compassion of Christ for scattered sheep. Now the third point is that the Christian mission begins with prayer. In verses 37 through 38, Jesus tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out, cal- uh, send out laborers into his harvest. Now the image of a harvest symbolizes a great ingathering of people into the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, which means that it's abundant, it's ready, it's white, it's ready to be gathered in. There are people ready, ready to be brought into the kingdom of God, but there are workers that are needed. So Jesus sees this problem. We see this problem. Overabundant harvest. It's ready. Very few workers. What should Jesus do? Well, I, I think, you know, if I were advising Jesus, Jesus, pull out your calendar and, and pick a date. We're going to send a short-term team right now to that harvest. Jesus, you need to give an eight-week class to your disciples. Make sure they're trained really well and, and how to use the latest, most innovative evangelistic methods. Jesus, start a mission fund. Have all your disciples start to give and start collecting and and we're going to start pouring in. That's where we should start. Maybe Jesus should start by recruiting Judean gap year students to come with him and and take a tour through the Holy Land. 
Now, all those things are great. I'm a firm believer in short-term trips. I'm a firm believer in mission funds. God works through means, which means he works through those things as well. However, I think it's important to see that mission doesn't begin with any of those things. Mission doesn't begin by our endeavors. Mission doesn't begin by us grabbing our wallets to give money. Mission doesn't begin by us feeling some kind of guilt trip to go. Mission begins by humble, dependent prayer to God. Mobilization begins and depends on the Lord of the harvest to send out harvest workers. I think that's important to see, especially as you look back on church history. I think you'll find that every great missional mobilization, every great missional movement, every great church planting movement begins with the same common denominator, prayer. Just a group of people coming together to pray for the lost in the world, to pray for those who don't know Jesus, to pray for the nations. In Acts, you see the disciples in an upper room praying when the Holy Spirit comes down, fills them, and then saves 3,000 people that very day. We see it later in Acts 4 when they're praying Psalm 2, asking and petitioning God for boldness. And then the whole room is shaken. And the people are given boldness to go and proclaim. In August 1806, one Samuel Mills, a student at Williams College, invited a small group of peers to gather and pray for the nations. Now, there's only like five of them, maybe six, but I think five of them. This is not where you think the, the world mission movement would start. This is not something that you would anticipate to take off the ground. I mean, most of us won't even have a party without five people showing up. And so he calls his friends together, gives out an announcement, invites them to come together to pray. And while they're praying in the middle of this field, a thunderstorm came suddenly out of nowhere. And so they decide that instead of canceling the prayer meeting, they are going to run and find refuge under this haystack. And that became what was called the Haystack Prayer Revival, 1806. So they were praying in 1806, getting together, wet, soaked, lightning outside, thunderstorm under hay, itchy, itchy hay, praying that God would send out a missionary from America. Less than five years later, Adoniram Judson became the first American missionary, and he, he landed in the country of Burma. The first Burmese Bible was printed and translated in the native tongue. A Burmese church was established, and to this day, they look back at Judson, and they think about the work that he did in and among them. Where did it begin? Not by Judson getting a guilt trip. Where did it begin? Not by Judson raising funds. It all began by a little prayer meeting under a haystack in the middle of a field during a thunderstorm. So why is this important for us to remember? I mean, we have a missions budget. We have missionaries that we support. We're sending out teams uh, on short-term trips. We've got one coming up in November to Colombia to, to serve Venezuelans and to train them to take the gospel back into Venezuela because not a lot of foreigners are allowed to come in at this moment. We'll have more mission opportunities next year. So why is it important for us to understand this point about missions? Well, I think it's important for us to be reminded that the work belongs first and foremost to God. He will receive the glory for the salvation of the nations. He will win converts from Burma, from Venezuela, from China, from Malawi, from the Dominican Republic, from Russia. Not one of our innovative evangelistic methods will win people by themselves. Not our well-trained missionaries, not our missions funds. Without a doubt, God will use those things and he definitely wants us to sacrificially give our money so that we can fund the missions movement. He wants you to go on a short-term trip. Just to be very clear about it, he wants you to go and share the gospel with your neighbor, with the nations. He wants you to go. 
He wants you to encourage others to go. If you can't go, he wants you to pray for them and he wants you to give. But before we do anything, we must hit our knees in humility and dependent prayer, knowing that we will never fulfill the Great Commission. It must be God or it will be no one. The Lord of the harvest is sovereign over his harvest. I found it incredibly helpful in thinking through our church. Sitting on my front porch wondering, why has there not been an outbreak of the gospel in our city? It's not, our city's not that big. We're just a small suburb on the south side of Dallas. Less than 3,000 people just gathered around here. And then we're part of the larger DFW that is huge and massive. But why have we not seen a massive outbreak of the gospel in this city? Why has my neighborhood not been personally transformed by the message of Jesus. I've lived there for four and a half years. I've shared the gospel faithfully. I believe I've tried to at least. Why are there Hispanic groups in our area, in this side of DFW, who are completely unengaged by gospel-proclaiming evangelistic churches? Why are there Muslims in our area, in Glen Heights, who do not know one friendly, welcoming, hospitable Christian. Why do Texans have a reputation of being angry toward refugees? Why are there areas in our region where there are no small groups meeting together for the sake of visibly showing people that we celebrate and love our Savior? There may be many reasons. Your neighbors may truly be hard-hearted and callous to the gospel message. You may be trying to bring the message and they, it just simply won't stick because they, they don't believe and, and God hasn't worked in their heart. That's, that's true. That's, that's up to our sovereign God to do that. It may also be that we've not had enough evangelistic trainings this year. It may be that we haven't found the most innovative evangelistic method yet. Maybe our evangelistic methods are a bit out of date and not current enough to catch people's eye and to catch their attention. It, it may be that. I, I doubt it's much of that, but it may be. I think, personally, that we don't see the outbreak of the gospel. We don't see people coming to Jesus in the way that we would desire to because we don't pray for it. We don't pray for the lost world. We don't pray for God to send workers into the harvest. When was the last time we just, we took a day together and we just fasted for Ovilla? We fasted for people in Glen Heights to know the gospel. We fasted for there to be a church plant in the southwest corner of Lancaster so that people could hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ from the scriptures. When was the last time? My friends, we have been working for about two years. Your elders have been planning and praying and and meeting together and we desperately long to plant a Spanish-speaking church in this building so that we can bring people who are first-generation Spanish speakers in to hear the gospel so that language will not be a barrier. And we have not been able to find people who can help us lead that, who have the time or the availability to do that. And I just remember sitting on my front porch feeling sorry for myself today as I was thinking through this. God, why have you? know we want to do this. Why haven't you given us this? Just the conviction on my heart. When was the last time I prayed that God would send that worker to this harvest? I haven't hit my knees in the way I should. Our church hasn't prayed in the way we should for God to send us a Spanish-speaking pastor who wants to plant a church. My friends, just one of the applications of this text is we know what needs to be done. We know the needs. We know how to go about it. But maybe one of the reasons it's not being done as effectively as we hope is because we just simply don't pray about it the way we should. My friends, Christians, pray fast. Pray specifically that we get a Spanish-speaking planter. Beg, petition the Lord of the harvest to send them to us. This time of COVID, do you pray 
for the neighbors to the right and left of you and across from you, for them to be saved more than you make your political position known. I mean, right now, Facebook and Instagram and all these different things, Twitter, are the way that we're kind of connected to the outside world. Do they read more from us about our complaints about the, the world's plan or, or do they see more of our conviction about what we think is right in COVID or do they hear a proclamation of the gospel through us? Do, they, do, they, do people here on Facebook, do they see you post things like, don't know who needs to see this today, but I'm praying you come to know Jesus during this time. Imagine just being a neighbor, not knowing Jesus, and they see you post something like that. More than your opinion, whether there should be mask or no mask, whether we should open up or not open up, whether the school should have closed down or not closed down, more than any of that. Your neighbor knows your opinion about that already. But do they know that you're praying specifically for them to know Jesus? I've been convicted by this myself. Christian, pray for your family. Pray for your lost neighbor. Pray for the nations. They desperately need the gospel. And join us in the desperate, humble prayer for the gospel to break out in this community. My prayer is that by 2021, Ovilla will look different. Glen Heights will look different. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know if God's going to answer the prayer, but we should be praying that this entire region where we're at should be transformed by the gospel. Only God can do that. Hit your knees with me. Join with me. Join Jesus as he's told us to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. May we be, before we ever see a revival, may we be people who have prayed for revival to come. Because only God can bring it. The final point we see about the Christian mission is that it embodies the restoration that has come in Christ. It says this, And he called to him twelve disciples, his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, Jesus calls these disciples to himself. He gives them authority to do what he has already begun to do. And in this first gospel, is the first time, and in, in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time that Matthew's been emphatic about the number 12. You don't see him anywhere else thus far be emphatic that there are 12 disciples. He says it twice. There are 12 disciples, there are now 12 apostles, and then he gives you their names. Well, why would he be so emphatic about there being 12? Well, again, it alludes all the way back to the Old Testament. When God called 12 patriarchs, it was the beginning of the Old Covenant community. It was the beginning of Israel. Well, now Jesus calls 12 apostles, and it is the foundation of a new covenant community. Jesus is beginning to make a new people with these 12 apostles. He's beginning to make a new community. I also found it interesting that none of these men are overly impressive. Fishermen. Probably smelly fishermen at that. Zealots. That's that really annoying political-minded person that keeps posting everything about politics. That's what a zealot is. And, and, and they were especially that way. That, those days they were like big on po- political power. Okay, So there's zealots. There's tax collectors who are kind of the traitors of society. I, you, you start to... You start to think that this is a joke. So Jesus walks in, he calls a fisherman, a zealot, and a tax collector to himself. Well, and you're waiting for the punchline, but there's no punchline. The point of the fact is, is that Jesus calls ordinary, sinful people who need restoration for themselves to become the messengers of reconciliation, the messengers of restoration. Christ sends out traitorous tax collectors. Christ sends out fishermen who will eventually deny him. Christ sends out zealots who don't have their priorities straight all the time. Christ sends out imperfect people. I think it's amazing to hear testimonies. There's, there's great books out there. Dispatches from the Front would be one that I would tell you to get. Nick, Nick, Rip, uh, Nip, Nick Ripkin's uh, The Insanity of God would be another one. You hear stories of prison guards coming to Jesus and then suddenly becoming preachers and planters for the gospel. My friends, you may say, I'm not called to missions. I'm an ordinary person. Peter was an ordinary fisherman. 
And not only that, he kind of dropped the ball right before Jesus' death, didn't he? It's not about you. It's not about your qualifications. It's not about your skills. Jesus doesn't call the super qualified. Jesus calls those who need restoration, those who receive restoration, and then those who will go and proclaim restoration. How else do we explain people like Mame Minkaye who once speared a man to death, who then becomes an international proclaimer of the gospel? How do we explain the fact that angry people find peace once self-serving, self-ambitious people like Judson becomes a self-sacrificing missionary, the first to come from America to reach Burma. Well, the only explanation is that God sends unqualified people who have tasted his restoration and will then go and proclaim restoration to the rest of the world. My friends, the gospel was entrusted to these 12 apostles And now it's been entrusted to us as ordinary people. We are no better off and no worse off than they were when they were sent. So there we have it. Those are the five points, I think, that this text, of how this text forms our mission. I think, though, we need to come back to this idea of Jesus and his heart of the loss, and, and begin to see the big picture of, okay, so we have mission, we have missional discourse, we have this idea that we are to go, we've seen all these different points about where to go, but let's just come back and, and linger on the heart of Christ just a little bit more. Matthew presents Jesus as a compassionate shepherd, and as if this entire mission he gives him is an overflow of that compassion he came to give. And I think as we're reading this compassionate shepherd, we're, we're we're drawn to John 10, where Jesus is described as the good shepherd who does what? Lays down his life for his sheep. The compassionate shepherd, the, the Savior, who saw these crowds and was deeply moved, turmoiled inside of himself, allowed that compassion to lead him to the cross. When Jesus carried the cross up Golgotha, It was done out of the compassion, out of the love for the nations that most of us hate. It was done for the people that most of us write off as unsavable. It was done for the the wicked sinners of the worst nation that you could ever think of, for Somalian pirates. It 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 was carried for the Russian president, Putin. Christ carried his cross out of love for the lost sheep of the world. He died on that cross. He was buried. But then three days later, he rose again. And then we get to Matthew 28 as we see our crucified and our resurrected shepherd standing on a hill and proclaiming to his disciples that it is now their commission to go to all the nations, to baptize them, name the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach them all of his commands. And guess what? I will be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus is with us. Jesus is working. Jesus is moving. As we share the gospel, as we go out, as we pray for the lost, as we mobilize, as we take on the commission that he has given us, it is him who is doing it in us. So my friends, may we, as people who want to reflect the compassion of Jesus, be faithful to the commission that we have been given. May we be willing to lay down our lives like our good shepherd so that future Minkayes, so that future Dayumas will hear the good news of peace, the good news of the gospel, and will be restored to God once more. Pray fervently this week how God has called you to in engage in mission. Later today, later this afternoon, it's Sunday afternoon, uh, you will be receiving an email with some very basic ideas of how you can engage in mission even while social distancing. You can engage in mission even if you have to be quarantined in your home. 
So I encourage you that as you receive those points, that you don't just put it into your spam, you don't just put it into your trash can, you don't just have it as a good thought, like we'll get to this at some point, but to actually go about this opportunity to engage in mission so that people can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. And if you will, just join me in prayer as we pray for our church. Let's pray for the lost around us right now. So if you will, just just stop and pause and just follow these kind of promptings. Pray for your neighbors in your neighborhood who need Jesus right now. Pray for God to send us a Spanish-speaking pastor to plant a church. Pray for more opportunities to proclaim the gospel to our community and to the nations. Finally, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, teenagers, college students, adults, to leave behind their fisher, fisher nets and to follow Jesus as they proclaim the gospel to the world. O Lord of the harvest, our Father, our friend, our God, will you mobilize us? Will you send us, Father? Will you stir up the compassion in our hearts so that we may even, in a small way, resemble the compassion and the deep stirrings of Jesus for lost sheep? Father, will you equip us? Father, will you keep us dependent? Will you keep us humble? But will you make us motivated for the glory of yourself and your son, that people may know that Jesus is king, that people may know that Jesus has died for their sins, that people may know that Jesus is risen and that he reigns at your right hand, and that he's returning again. Father God, please revive in us a desire to see people saved to see the gospel go out, to be bold, and to have the compassion of Christ as we go about the mission of Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. God bless the church family. Love you.